So last week we started into this topic of human sexuality and we did a brief introduction as to why we need to talk about this and then we jumped into the first statement on marriage. And we got one line into the statement on marriage and um, after further thought I realized we need to pause before we can continue that statement on marriage and we probably will not return back to that statement on marriage even tonight. We'll get back to that probably next time. Now by next time I don't mean next week because where are we going to be next Sunday evening? Grace, up in Hudson, that's right. Uh, so we'll be there at 4 o'clock next, next Sunday. But the next Sunday we will be back here uh, re- re- returning to this discussion. So I think it's helpful for us to, to know we're not trying to go through the 12 statements in this report, which are wonderful statements and they are rich. We're not trying to simply proof text our way into a theology that we, or a sexuality or an ethic that we think we can extract from piecing different pieces of Scripture together. Instead, what we want to do is understand more holistically from Scripture what the Bible talks uh, uh, says about uh, human sexuality, about man and woman, about, um, about this marriage relationship. And uh, the PCA report goes into some of that in some of those later pages that I had mentioned before. The document is 60-some pages long. We're getting into some of those latter pages that dive into some history and some, some richer things. So what I've done in our handout for this week is paraphrase for you about, let's see, from page 35 to 44. So about 10 pages worth of information uh, into six pages. So not that paraphrased. Um, but I think uh, this is broken out in a way that we can we can talk through it. This this report was designed to be used in churches, and I think the layout was is is pretty helpful. So here it is, uh, even boiled down just a little bit more. Uh, I'd like us to just think for a minute uh, when when the world starts talking about sexuality today, some of those those conversations that keep coming up uh, include discussions about well, look at the oppression of the past, and then the past ancient cultures surrounded sex with all sorts of taboos. In general, sex outside of marriage was forbidden in order to control women, to help men protect their daughters and wives as their property. You'll hear that. That's a view that people would will uh, propose. Maybe you've heard that. Anybody heard that one before? The use of these structures to oppress people. Um, second, you'll hear some people talk about, well, sexuality is where we need authentic expression because we've come to believe in the freedom and the rights of individuals um, these points, by the way, also come from the report on page 34. Um, in modern times, we've come to believe in the freedom and rights of individuals, including the right to love whoever you choose to love, uh, as long as you're in a consensual relationship. Uh, and you've probably heard that as well. People will also talk about how we have to fight to love whom we want to love. Uh, a number of Brave individuals, usually women, gay, and transgender people, have heroically stood up to the oppressive culture and said, this is who I am, don't let anyone tell you you can or can't, who you can or cannot love. These people, I mean, you've heard that message. This, these are people who are standing up specifically against the predominant Judeo-Christian traditional marriage, and that's how they view all this. It's just a Judeo-Christian, it's a vestige of old religious oppression. Uh, Many of the early heroes of this movement were marginalized, and many died for their willingness to challenge the cultural elites. Uh, There are the hard-won rights of today. 
We have a culture that affirms the right to have sex outside of marriage, to conduct same-sex relationships and include them in the legal institution of marriage and to allow people to choose their own genders. In all of these changes, we are forging the first human society in history which is sex-positive and in which all persons can live as equal sexual beings. So that is unique to America. And um, we got into that... Um, can't remember if we got into that last time or if we're going to get into that this time. It's running together for me. And then uh, lastly here, the continual danger. Despite these accomplishments, if you, if you call them accomplishments, of culture, most places in the world and many places in our own society still resist uh, a culture of sexual freedom and justice. Uh, so indeed, there are those who would try to turn back the clock and roll back these rights. Under no circumstances should we let regressive views of sexuality um, come back up. So we're going to hopefully get into that um, more today as we dive into some specific challenges to talk about as we talk about sexuality. Any thoughts on what I just said? Yes. I'm not familiar with the term sex positive. Yeah, so I think um, there is a culture of sex negativity where all sexuality is bad, any sexual expression is dirty, uh, and that is a view that... um, I'd say has been probably prominent in certain Christian circles for generations, just saying if anything sexual is wrong. Whereas in our world, saying uh, sex is good, I mean, that is, everybody agrees sex is good. Christians agree sex is good. Um, and then the, the question now, of course, is what is good biblical ex, uh, you know, sexuality and how can, that, how can sex be a good thing? So we are a sex-positive society. Does that make sense in that way? Not that all sex is good because, of course, we understand that there are types of, of sex that are wrong, and, and whether it's homosexual or even lots of heterosexual sex is wrong. And so, um, but, but still, culture views sex as a positive thing. Other thoughts? Questions? Okay, let's jump in here. Here's uh, an excursus before we return to that discussion on marriage. Um, it, this, the Christian ethic, you know, even you look at that first line from last week, which nobody has in front of them, my fault, uh, and it's marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and that sounds so oppressive to the modern mind. How could you tell me that that? How could you tell me what to do with my sexuality and my person? History reveals that the Christian ethic of marriage uh, conflicted with the secular culture at the time of the early church in similar ways to today. And so we're going to look at that briefly tonight to see how in the Roman Greco-Roman world Christians were weird. They were different. And, and that's because of their view of sexuality in part. And while the secular ethic of sexuality is driven by consumerism and self-service, the Christian ethic of sexuality is of self-giving, redemption, and the giving of life. So that is a broad stroke of the difference between how the world views sexuality and how Christians view sexuality. We believe that sexuality is about giving yourself. It is about redemption, and it is about giving life. So these are things we're going to get into more in these uh, pages that you have in front of you. We probably will not get through all this. My expectation is we'll get through, probably take us three weeks to get through these pages before we return to statement one. That's my expectation. Okay, first, uh, some preliminary challenges. You got to figure out what the world means when they talk about identity and uh, what do we mean when we talk about identity. Uh, The world is going to talk about identity... um, in terms of their sexuality, that you basically you're not going to find 
somebody, a modern thinker today, who's going to try to describe themselves without mentioning their sexuality, and often their sexuality is the first thing they mention. And so sexuality is so tied to our identity today, uh, people think that your expression of your sexuality is crucial for your expression of your identity. And therefore, any prohibitions about sexuality are, are senseless. They don't understand it. How could you tell me that I'm not something that I am? And that's the, uh, how sexuality is so tied to identity. Modernity would say, if you want to use sex for the development of new human life, that's an option and your choice, but it's not the primary reason people have sex. Rather, sex is for individual fulfillment and self-realization. Determining and acting on your sexual desires is considered a crucial part of the process of becoming an authentic person. So, um, sex just becomes something that is yours to use how you would like for your happiness. And it's lost all levels of, um, I'm going to use this word, we're going to get into it more. It's lost any cosmic dimension. There's no theological element to sexuality anymore. It's bestial, if I, if I can put it crassly, it's become a bestial, instinctual, uh, just a feeling. A thing that you do to make yourself, to understand yourself or to make yourself feel good. Uh, the modern world does not believe that sex is to be used to honor God or to create and nurture new life. There's also a, um, now before we move on to this, we'll get to this in, in more detail. It's, it's, it's here in the, in the next page. Um, we have Christians who have conceded this point. They'll say, nah, sexuality, you know, it's, you can use it how you want. And, and so you actually have, and I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about even a one man, one woman, heterosexual marriage, even there, sex can be misused as a selfish thing. Even there, um, sex has been turned into something that is for primarily for our own um, use, for our own purposes, for our own enjoyment. Uh, rather than having any relationship to um, honoring God, rather than having any connection with procreation, we've isolated it as a simple pleasure toy. Uh, and so Christians have conceded some of these things. And, and I think uh, we, we'll, we'll get into that shortly. And I think we need to make sure that we're not uh, just giving in to some of these simplistic understandings of sex. Second, uh, another challenge is this, these ideas of freedom and power. Uh, and this has to do with, um, I guess to put it short, this is, this is an ideological Marxism. It's to say that uh, anybody who has a, a statement over what should or should not be, even with sexuality, needs to be, um, that power needs to be removed from them. So people are trying to create their own power and their own freedom by expressing themselves in a way that um, any authority has not told them they must. So any statement about meaning, definition, or objective truth are considered language and truth claims of an oppressive elite. They are constructions of a power-hungry few. The way forward then is to deconstruct all the norms like gender binary, to say that there's just one man and one woman. Well, uh, in order to express yourself fully, you need to go ahead and deconstruct all those <coughs> oppressive structures like the fact that there is one man and one woman. That, that is called a, an oppressive structure. So let's remove that so that we can, um, we can then remove the power from those, those power-hungry few who have imposed these uh, rules on me. The meaning of life is to determine who you are and to throw off the shackles of an oppressive society that refuses to accept and include you. Think about children's movies. They're always about throwing off the power of the people above them and becoming their free own person and expressing themselves with their own authority and individuality. 
Uh, this is the message that our generations have been taught. You probably can think back to your own childhood and say, oh yeah, that was the message of most of those movies I watched. Christians have a hard time defending the biblical ethic of sexuality um, because we have also adapted too much to this mindset. Uh, a lot of churches will preach, oh, well, Jesus is just here to make you the best version of you. Uh, Jesus is here to um, help you become the best person you can be. Um, think of the prosperity gospel. You think of membership less churches or discipline less churches. These are churches that don't want to require anything of you because that would be imposing upon you. Uh, or people who won't challenge expressive individualism. That's a, a whole concept of the, how we need to express our individual identity and personhood and how we um, express our sexuality. So churches that aren't pushing back against that or churches that preach the prosperity gospel, they are already giving in to that mindset of um, freedom and power for the individual. So these are just underlying conceptual issues uh, that are going to be interfering with discussing a biblical sexual ethic. Making sense? Questions? Comments? Here's a summary statement right there in bold at the bottom of page 6. Only in a compelling biblical framework of identity, of being in Christ, and of discipleship, of losing oneself in the love and service of God in order to find one's true self, will all of the Christian teaching about the meaning of sex make sense. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Uh, I, I think, I don't want that paragraph to be a flyover paragraph, the one that's bold there. Sexuality is about losing oneself. Sexuality, sexuality is about giving of yourself um, in order to find your true self in Christ and what he has designed for marriage and sexuality to be. Okay, let's look here specifically at how the early church interacted with the Roman world. A lot of people will say that uh, the Roman sexuality back, the Greco-Roman uh, sexuality back in the early um, time of the New Testament and then thereafter was a, a culture of free expression. It was sexual freedom. It's viewed in such positive terms uh, like uh, our sex positive discussions today. Um, and so, therefore, Christians are charged, were charged in those days um, of saying, well, Christians are just, the way that they define sex, their ethic is stifling, it's a killjoy, it's negative, it's oppressive, and it's unrealistic. Um, and they, knew, they also knew that while in the short term, short run, um, sexual self-control is hard in the long run, the Christian sex ethic is more fulfilling and less dehumanizing. In our day, we must also find ways to talk confidently about the revolutionary Christian good news about sex. <clears throat> Here are some realities of the Greco-Roman sexual ethic that the Christian world actually uh, rebelled against in such a good way because that Greco-Roman sexual ethic was not as um, awesome as it sounds. It was not as free. It's not like now everybody was just um, doing fine and sex was such a great fun thing for everybody because women were expected to remain virgins until marriage and remain monogamous throughout their marriage. But men were expected to have sex with servants and slaves, prostitutes, poor women, and boys. They could force themselves onto anyone below them in the social order. In other words, they could have sex and were expected to have sex with whomever they wanted except for the wife of someone who had higher social status. Right. So it was... It was a very double standard 
and you can see how that is not just dehumanizing. That is, um, I had another word, <clears throat> and dehumanizing forced it out of my brain. Um, power was the determining factor for the purpose of and therefore the practice of sex. So power was uh, hugely a part of how sexuality was um, done and practiced in, in Greco-Roman world. The social order was the source of right and wrong in sexuality. The social order was the source of right and wrong in sexuality. That theme's going to come back. The Christian revolution here, so this was, they call this the first sexual revolution. This is the Christian sexual revolution of the Greco-Roman ethic. The Christians came in and they said, no, the social order is not the source of right and wrong in sexuality, but sex has a cosmic dimension. It has to be um, used before God himself. The way we use it has to be explained and, and defended before God himself. And the way that uh, we view sexuality must be done in a way that is honorable in the presence of God himself. The goodness of sex was rooted for Christians in covenantal love and gender difference. Covenantal love, gender difference. Paul made a statement uh, in 1 Corinthians 7 here, you'll see that uh, it's, it's an unprecedented declaration without a double standard. There's no double standard here for men and women. It says, um, especially down to uh, verse 4, uh, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And everybody would be saying, yeah, that's right. But they don't expect this next line. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There's a, an inequality before God and sexuality. There is this covenant um, weight that levels that, that playing field for men and women who are married in, the sexual, uh, in terms of sexuality. <clears throat> and so this was a radical, unprecedented declaration in those days. These, here are Christians totally changing the way sexuality is viewed. It's not a power play. It's not about men um, using their authority over women. It's not about those who have higher standard, uh, higher social standing, imposing themselves on those of lower social standing. Because in the Christian ethic, the vulnerable were protected. They could not be exploited by the socially powerful. Women, slaves, and children were protected by the insistence that sex occur only within the safety of the covenantal union of marriage. A man would have to give up his whole life for this woman. And uh, that is, that's a protective element. That is a, um, a honing element to, to make this Christian sexual ethic um, holy compared to that of the Greco-Roman world. Sex was seen and celebrated no longer as a mere appetite that we could barely control, but rather as a joyous, even sacred expression that reflects the way God is saving the world. That is a passing comment, that last line. It is a joyous, even sacred expression that reflects the way God is saving the world. You look at that and like, what in the world is that talking about? We'll get there. Uh, that is going to be once we get to constructing a positive Christian view of sexuality, we're going to explain how um, marriage, covenant love, and, um, and sexuality reflect the way that God is saving the world. <clears throat> okay, thoughts right now about this historical take. I think it's helpful for us to see that the Christian sexual ethic is actually, um, it's not stifling, it's freeing. It's not to oppress. It is um, to encourage and build up uh, the body of Christ. It's almost funny because the 
the Christian sexual, sexual ethic protects the vulnerable and many movements in our culture are all about protecting the mm-hmm. vulnerable. You know? mm-hmm. Me Too is about protecting women. Mm-hmm. So there's a funny, mm-hmm. even though they would deny it probably, there, there's a certain sense in which the Christian ethic supports the vulnerable. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I think the Christian ethic, absolutely, not just in sexuality, but in, in every way, it's, it's important that we care for those who are oppressed and marginalized. And there are elements of these movements that are very good. And and we're going to, I think, again, I can't remember if this is in this um, handout or if it was in the last one, but there are elements of our our modern, I think it's in this one, there are elements of our modern view of sexuality that are much improved over that ancient view because of the influence Christianity has had in the in the western world for centuries so the the consensual nature of sex that we require here in our culture is very good right like there should be consensus consent uh, from both parties rather than the oppression of the vulnerable and so yeah that's absolutely that flows from the christian ethic itself of course it becomes misapplied and misused in other ways unfortunately that's what we're really good at as people Okay, let's talk about the modern sexual revolution. No big deal. Bottom of page seven. All right, this differs from the Greco-Roman ethic by promoting, all right, there it is, consent of both parties. And second, uh, the goodness of the physical body. Both were contributions of Christianity in the West. David, you just teed us right up for this. We move into it. Um, Modern sexuality has, like the Greco-Roman ethic, uh, separated sex from God, though, and reattached it to the social order. Sex is, again, detached from the requirement of lifelong commitment in marriage. It is about self-fulfillment instead of self-giving. Modern sexuality is depersonalizing and objectifying, though not as brutally as the Greco-Roman ethic did. For example, pornography detaches sex not just from the marriage, but from the personal relationship itself. Sex is used by individuals, sometimes both at the same time, to meet their own needs. And um, at other times, women often feel uh, uh, they end up feeling like objects being used. Uh, so this, these are some products now of, of the modern sexual revolution, and that's speaking of the last uh, 80 years or so. But it is helpful to note that consent is a good thing. The goodness of the physical body is a good thing, and both of those are contributions of Christianity to sexuality. <clears throat> So, if that's giving us a little bit of context, a little bit of history, let's um, let's see if we can start a, a a general overview of how then should we build a biblical framework of sexuality. Saying here's here's what it's not, here's what it's not. Um, what is it? What is sexuality? It's helpful to to state what we're not saying, but it's we 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 need to get to saying what we do think sexuality is. And this, I think, is. These next two pages, pages eight and nine, are what so many of us wished our churches had handed to us when we were younger. The things that we wished our churches would have taught on about the goodness of sexuality and how it is a reflection of the gospel. So pages eight and nine here, I'm not going to rush us through these. We, will not, we probably will not get through pages eight and nine today. Maybe we will. Maybe there will be no questions and no comments, and we'll just, we'll just keep rocking. <clears throat> Christian theology answers that sex is part of the image of God. It must image God, and in particular, his redeeming love. 
Sex is not about enhancing one's power, but about mutually giving up power to one another in love as Christ did for us. The Christian answer to the question, why must sex be within heterosexual marriage, gets us into the very heart of the gospel. We should not present the sex ethic without rooting it in the Bible's doctrines of God, of creation, and of redemption. Growing up, maybe this was the same for you. Sex was simply a list of things not to do. Let me tell you now what sex is to do. Uh, these, it, it, is, it gets us into the heart of the gospel. It gets us into the doctrine of who is God, what is creation, and what is redemption, what is salvation itself. And sex is going to mirror these things for us. So Paul is uh, given a question. Uh, why is sex outside of marriage wrong? Uh, specifically, this context had, was dealing with prostitution. Uh, but Paul is making an argument, and his answer, why is sex outside of marriage wrong? He, he doesn't say, um, because it's going to ruin your future. He doesn't say, because it's going to break a relationship. These things are probably true. He says, because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is dealing with redemption. This is dealing with who you are before God. Why is sex outside of marriage wrong? Because of who you are to God. And um, and there's and it gets better. Uh, this next paragraph: Sex is a signpost pointing to God's design of saving love, and it is a means for experiencing something of that same pattern of love at the horizontal level between two human beings that we know at the vertical level in Christ. A knowledge and a love and a commitment and a covenant relationship um, to another human uh, that helps us understand, um, in some level, our our covenant, um, unconditional relationship that we have to our Father through Christ. So, it's it's starting to image for us the richness and the depth of a saving relationship with God. Um, there are three points that follow below before we get into those. Um, any thoughts about how, um, about what we're about to get into and how sex is to be something constructive rather than a list of prohibitions? Those prohibitions naturally fro- flow from a positive understanding of what it is supposed to be. I'm not saying that the prohibitions are wrong, but when, you, that, when that's all you know, you're like, well, why? Um, well, here are the whys. Any thoughts on this before we jump in? Okay, let's talk about how good sex is. First of all, sex is for self-giving. Self-giving, which is only complete if there is a lifelong covenant. You can't give yourself to somebody completely if you don't have that lifelong covenant. A one-night stand is not giving yourself to somebody. That is taking from somebody. That is not giving yourself to them for life. That is not... um, I have a hard way. I have a hard time seeing it as any kind of giving at all. It's a. It, it does not consider the value of that person. It does not consider them um, to be worthy of any kind of commitment or covenant. You're not giving to them. You are taking from them. So sex is for self-giving, giving yourself. And the world says that sex is for for taking, for being fulfilled, for feeling better about yourself. Um, second point. Uh, Sex is for the bridging of difference across the barrier between male and female. 
like, that sounds arbitrary. How can you say that? We'll take it back to the very beginning of who we are as created beings. It was not good that man should be alone. There needed to be a helper. And God made a different gender, a woman for him. And it was very good. There's a difference between man and woman. There is a difference between those genders. We'll we'll get into it more and more. Um, And when you see sex as bridging that gap between genders, um, it, it gives us... It, 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 we'll get into it, but it, it images the, the union between two very different things in redemption, God and humanity. Uh, so we'll get there. Uh, third, sex is for the creation and nurture of life. Some of you are going to accuse me of being Catholic. That's okay. That's okay. Sex is for procreation. Sex is for having children. Uh, and to separate those two really misses the point on what God designed sexuality to be and the goodness um, that of the, the wholeness of sexuality uh, when you understand the, the life-giving nature of it when it is between a man and a woman in marriage. That's why it's only supposed to be for a man and a woman in marriage because of that life-giving element of it. That's not the only reason, but that is, um, fills out that, that argument. Okay, let's dive in to the first one here. Sex is for self-giving. As union with Christ is a relationship of exclusive, covenantal, self-giving love, so sexual intimacy is only to be experienced within the covenant of marriage. And as you read this, you you start to think of, um, I mean, naturally, you start to think of, well, I have heard so many different things about how sexuality is, you know, you're supposed to, you know, would you ever buy a car without test driving it? Right, then, then why would you marry somebody without, you know, trying things out? That is such, such a horrible view of sexuality. It views sexuality as a performance. It views sexuality as something in which you're supposed to impress the other person rather than give yourself to them. Uh, and so this is... Um, this point here is, is showing us there is an exclusive covenantal self-giving layer uh, a, a, in a nature of sexuality that is exclusive and covenantal and self-giving. Uh, and, and so this, this marriage covenant that God designed, God designed man and woman to be married. That marriage in the garden, I'm sure he did not, you know, they didn't have two gold rings and and say, you know, by the power invested in me, by the Garden of Eden, I pronounce you man and wife. Um, but that was a marriage. That is the marriage between Adam and Eve. And from that, it, re- it mirrors that redemptive covenant between God and humanity. From the beginning, this shows us how God has wed himself to his people to know them and to be with them forever in a covenant eternal love and relationship. And you can see throughout the Old Testament, there are lots of references to God being married to his people Israel. It's all over. Um, and, and it is fascinating at times to see, oh, God also divorced his people. Um, it was a, a temporary divorce. That I'm, I'm leading us down a rabbit hole. I'm going to stop there. Um, because Hosea talks about God's marriage to Israel in such... Um, terms of commitment 
an unrelenting love for people like you and me who are like Gomer, the prostitute, who are so unfaithful. And, and God has pursued and pursued and pursued and does not give up on his covenant for his people. And then you get to the end of Hosea and he just, he just weeps for his people. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? I cannot give you up. You are my people. And, and his love for us is so unending and so rich and so exclusive. And he has given so much of himself to be wed to his people. And so we, we get a glimpse of that in marriage when you realize, okay, I have totally failed my spouse. My spouse has totally failed me. Guess what? This is an opportunity now to reemphasize our exclusive covenant commitment to one another and to love each other anyway. And, and it's not because we have any power in us. It's because of that power of, um, of redemption that we have received in the gospel, where Christ has given himself for a people who are, um, who are wayward, people who have not looked for him. He has looked for them and he has loved us. And, and when we see how wayward we have been, his love for us is incredible. Um, I think this point that the, the statement makes, the uh, report makes under A, there on page eight, it says, the marriage covenant mirrors the redemptive covenant between God and humanity. As such, there is no intimacy without entering into an exclusive, permanent covenant relationship with your spouse. Okay, on an entirely different different level, like you you enjoy getting to know people, but you also want security in those friendships and in those relationships to say, "All right, are they are they just like going to walk away from me?" Um, so on Instagram, like you, you meet somebody and and you're like, "All right, I'm going to go follow them on Instagram." And if they and you're like, "Are they going to follow me back?" Right? You're like, I, I wonder, is there going to be any commitment back from them? Is there going to be any uh, way of saying, all right, yeah, like I care enough about you to click follow. And then they do, and like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. We're like actually friends. There, there's this, there's this, of course I'm exaggerating, and maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not exaggerating. But this, just the slightest level of commitment from somebody else, of promise, um, that's how you, that totally changes the way you view your relationship to them. You, you feel like you know them. You feel like there's an intimacy there um, that cannot be there without any response from them. Like somebody you see all the time and, you know, your roommate and you follow, follow her on Instagram and then she never follows you back. You're like, that hurts. Um, I don't know why I'm using Instagram. I've not been on Instagram in 12 years. <laughs> uh, maybe it's not been that long, nine years, whatever it is. Um, I'm just picking a social media platform. Um, but you, you get the point. This, this commitment uh, increases intimacy. This exclusivity. Say, wait, no. Like, okay, so this, this is terrible. At, at CBCA, there was this thing uh, that the teachers called teacher prom. It's not actually teacher prom. I mean, basically what it was, the best students at the school, the students with the highest GPAs, would pick a teacher to go with them to this banquet dinner to honor the teachers. And so as teachers, we were all like, oh man, are they going to pick you? Are they going to pick me? Um, and, and if you got picked, you're like, oh yeah, like that's my kid, right? And, and then the kid is like, yeah, that's my teacher. And so there's like this, this commitment to one another. Like, yeah, that's like, we've got, got this relationship. Uh, and you get all excited that you're going to teacher prom. And, um, and that's because there's this like, that student could only pick one teacher. 
there are 60, 80, 100 teachers at the school. Right? And you feel really special when you are the one chosen. Um, in sexuality, um, that's a terrible segue. Um, <laughs> forgive me. Um, <laughs> different analogy. Yeah. Um, God's commitment to his people is indicative of that commitment that a man makes to a woman and a woman to a man. It's exclusive. There's nobody else that you're going to marry. There's nobody else that's going to hang with you um, even when you are uh, in, in, on your worst day. So that commitment and that exclusivity makes sexual intimacy intimate rather than fear-filled, rather than um, worrisome, rather than trying to perform in order to make the other person like you because it, it's preceded by a covenant in which you, are then, you then have the freedom to, uh, to give of yourself and to, to find yourself um, loved, truly loved. And, and so that ex exclusivity, I know I've used that word a lot, but I think that's um, an, a, an important word as we talk about it because the world looks at it as a consumerist and transactional uh, sort of thing. It's not permanent and you're just trying to, um, you know, mutually fulfill each other. You know, you feel good, I feel good, all right, rather than committing to each other. Um, so therefore, marriage as a covenant uh, should be based on mutual self-giving and putting the needs of the other over your own needs and putting the needs of the relationship over your own needs. Um, I've said this before, but when, uh, when you get married, it takes a while for you to switch from thinking about, you know, your, your spouse as you and me to thinking about it as us. It takes, I've heard three to five years, depending on who you are. And you, then you start to think about it as us. And, um, and that shows that you, maybe you're starting to think about the relationship as more important than yourself. And when you can then, in a sense, disappear into the relationship, you realize then that you're not here just for yourself. You're here for this relationship. Uh, and then sexuality is um, within that to, to strengthen the relationship, to strengthen the other, to be caring for the other person. And so spouses give up their independence for interdependence. Uh, they give of their entire selves. They give their entire selves to each other emotionally, physically, legally, economically. These are words um, of the report uh, that they use to describe. And I think it's really helpful. You have to think, how can I give myself to you emotionally, physically, legally, economically? Uh, and included, of course, in that is um, sexually. Okay, thoughts about this? The exclusivity, the permanent nature of it. Yes? A couple of things. Um, the, the, um, the couple that I um, performed their wedding ceremony lived together for, I think, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. and, and they took a, a, an assessment mm -hmm. that we based their counsel on. And I think they would say... Um, Sex was the means by which we developed intimacy. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the opposite mm -hmm. of this. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's one of my questions, is yeah. how to kind of clarify that in our culture. Mm -hmm. The second one is we did this um, purity ring thing with our boys when they turned 13. And how would you explain to a 13-year-old boy uh, that sex is a signpost pointing to God's design and saving love. I think that phrase is pretty profound. Mm. 
And yet, I think it's hard to explain to a 13-year-old boy what that means. Yeah. Or a 30-year-old boy. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Isn't that interesting? Oh, I, 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 I think I want to come back to both of those. Do you, are you answering that? No. Okay. Well, let's tackle the second one first. Yeah. Um, I've not had a 13-year-old boy. Okay. Um, and so I'm not going to try to just kind of, you know, cop out. You know, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to think through. I've, I've not thought through this in depth. How do you explain this um, richly? But you were a 13-year-old boy. And, and I think yeah. That explanation, I think, is what's missing in Christian yeah. homes. Yeah, yeah. Because we were doing the whole don't do this. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing, but mm-hmm. don't do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And explaining that this is a, a signpost of God's design for saving love. Yeah. Is it, that's a pretty abstract concept. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'd it, love to really, yeah, almost see it modeled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, um, and I th- point A that we just talked about is one example of it. God's saving love is exclusive and intentional and unconditional, and God has given Himself. Um, so I would say, in that way, you can say, "Hey, sex is not for you to." Um, not something to play around with. Sex is not something for you to seek your own happiness through. Um, you need to think about how God has given you your sexuality um, to be used for uh, one woman, your wife one day, where you can express to her in an exclusive, covenantal, self-giving way your love for her and your care for her. And, the, and, and it's going to be a way for you to lay down your life for your wife. Uh, so if you find yourself wanting to use it in any other way that does not fit that description, um, then correct correct that um, in your own heart and in your actions, and um, make sure you have a mentor in your life where you can talk to who you can talk to about um, about that. And points B and C are also going to help fill that out a little bit. What exactly does it mean that it's a signpo- signpost pointing to God's design? Well, it's it's all three points. Um, I think the phrase that's catching me is the idea of saving love. So Brenda and I were virgins, and our wedding night was the first time either one of us mm-hmm. had a sexual encounter. But I don't know that I ever would have described it as saving love. Mm-hmm. It was certainly mm-hmm. exclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was, though, indicative of God's saving love. Because God's saving love for you is that intentional and exclusive. Um, so... Yeah, and maybe we just need to do a better job of explaining how God's exclusive love does save. It yeah. it, it does. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and I'm not at all saying that we're doing this right or that we've got this figured out. I'm, I'm we're figuring this out as a young church right now. We're trying to like that's why we're going through this. So these questions are super helpful. Uh, do you have a thought? Like, how would you answer your own question? Well, I, I think the notion of exclusive. And what I what we did is for our thirteen year olds is describe it as um, in Ephesians five. It's an expression of other centered love. It is exactly right. Um, husbands love your wives mm-hmm. as Christ loved the church, and how high that standard is. Yeah. Um, well, let's flip to Ephesians five really fast. I, uh, like, do you have? Yeah, and y'all y'all open up there to Ephesians five. Because we're not going to read the whole thing, 
But I have one thing I want us to look at that uh, kind of changed the way I view this whole passage. Starting in Ephesians 5, verse 22, you get into the the well-known verses, uh, wives submit to your own husbands, and then starting in verse 25. Notice verses 22, 23, and 24, that's for the wives. For the husbands, and everybody's like, oh, this passage is so oppressive to wives. Well, look at what Paul commands the husband starting in verse 25. It goes far longer than three verses. But the point is, both wives submitting to your husbands and husbands loving your wives, all this is in service to verse 21. Paul had just ended the prior section with this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do you do that? How do you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? It includes these things, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks always. Um, and, And then Paul breaks it down even further and says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Uh, So all this is a part of our reverence for Christ in submitting to one another. Um, So hopefully, I mean, that does not at all, I mean, that hopefully the goal of that is to to buttress what you had said about Ephesians 5 and what you had said to your boys about Ephesians 5. It's about our submission to Christ and and, and, uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, I don't know if that would click for a 13-year-old boy. Um, but. And some things are principles that are shared that they realize later. I mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we communicated to them saving love. Because mm-hmm. selfless love, I think we did communicate. That. Good. And I, I would go ahead and say that's the same category of saving love, even if it's not called that. Because without God's selfless love for us, there would be no salvation. So um, what I find myself thinking about is how did my exclusivity save Brenda? Um, that might be taking it too far. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't want to... his... Savior. Yeah, and, and it, it points more to what Christ has done for, for Brenda and her love for him and Christ's love for you. And then we as a church wed to Christ one day. Um as as the church you have more the way that I heard it explained when I was young and I don't know if this is right or wrong um, but like sex is almost like a representation of the trinity I don't know if you've ever heard that before yeah I don't want to I don't want to go that, there that, like, now I'm, I'm starting to feel like a guy from gospel coalition uh-huh, I think about uh-huh, it and uh-huh. so I'm like I don't know what someone says that. yeah I, I'm uncomfortable with that yeah. That sexualizes the Trinity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Okay. Yeah. So you like a deep form of expression of love. Okay. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not comfortable going any further than that. Okay. Right so now. the better picture is this points to the saving love of Christ. Mm-hmm. And flows from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we are giving people a glimpse of what saving love is mm-hmm. like. By exclusivity, yeah, and yeah. All of those. yeah. I think I think that's right. And if, if yeah, if if I'm wrong, somebody else help me fill this out here. Yeah. Wednesday, I mentioned that the church can really screw this up. Um, we do an awful lot of teaching doctrine. 
this is part of doctrine and it should be part of the high school curriculum hmm. in our churches. So you, you, you would say that then, you're saying this is good doctrine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is solid biblical doctrine and there's no reason why it can't be taught by either... Um, oh my goodness, members of session. Yeah, elders, yep. Or it, um, men who are actually know what they're talking about, um, including all of the different words um, that are used by the uh, either the queer community and, and mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. even, mm -hmm. you know, the the straight community that are accept, that mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. promoting that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, this need because I raising my kids, I taught them about the sanctity of marriage and you know one man, one wife, blah blah blah, and I never came up with this kind of stuff. I, I'm and right I there with you. I, the I'm with you. I'm, I'm wondering why is it um, after being an ordained minister that I finally come across this? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm 50 years old and I finally get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I see it. I, mm -hmm. I have mm -hmm. experienced it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, now I just like oh. We can't. We cannot expect young people that are younger than twenty-five years old, because the frontal brain or frontal lobe is not fully developed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, this we need we need to start early with this that like we need to start talking about this at the very first conversations about what sex is with kids and i think we need to keep talking about it. i think it's that's good good that we're continuing to talk about it at, what, at whatever ages we are here um because we are always we need to be growing in our understanding and, and this is this is not just something for um pubescent kids to figure out like this is for all of us as humans to grow in and to God still has room for every single one of us to grow on our understanding of sexuality in marriage and how it is to be a reflection of, of, of godly saving love. Um, so we, I think I, we should never stop this conversation. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm with you. Uh, one comment here, then up here. And I would just like add to that, that as a church plant, it's good that this is coming up now as yes. this is something to build off of and build. I don't want to say it like as a foundation, but no, it's great. That be clear from the beginning, because then anyone who's joined the church or anyone who's a part of the church knows where we are at because mm -hmm. we've already talked about mm -hmm. it. Not that we should ever stop talking. About right? It, no, you're absolutely right. And I, I, it sets our trajectory. Yeah, yeah I, so I agree. Then, yeah, going forward, it is you know something when we have Sunday school classes or you have you know a high school ministry, those things that all crop up where all of this will be very important. Mm -hmm. You can actually talk about mm -hmm. it instead of. I mean, I think honestly, thank you, Nate Bauer. I think mm -hmm. doing premarital counseling with him was the first time I understood mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. I had a lot mm -hmm. of good biblical background, but no real good examples of what that saving mm -hmm. love and marriage mm -hmm. look like mm -hmm. until 
Yeah. Yeah. Nate was really like, no, this whole thing, this whole marriage and sexuality is that whole giving aspect, not just, well, once you're married, then you can do whatever with it that you want. Yeah, absolutely. To Diane's point, this couple, both of them were raised in the church. And the mother pulled, her mother pulled me aside after the wedding ceremony. She said, the greatest thing is that these two Christian people are getting married. And I didn't do it, but I wanted to say, so what is it that makes them Christian? (laughs) (laughs) That they were raised in the church and developed these crazy ideas? Or what is it? And um, I didn't have a debate with her one quick or not, but (laughs) I did think that thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there are lots of people who have been raised in the church who have a basic faith and understanding, like saving knowledge of Christ, yet have not been taught on these things and are living in utter sin. And I know many who have been confronted about it, repented, and moved out before they got married. Like they were living together. They were told that you can't do that. They moved out out of obedience to Christ. So some of these people need to be taught and need to be told. And... uh yeah, so I hear what you're saying, there, but there's some who just don't, who who aren't there. Just being raised in the church obviously doesn't doesn't save you. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're we're over time. No surprise. Um, <laughs> I'm going to push pause there. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll sing one more song. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us as human beings sexuality. We praise you that you have made it good. And we confess that we have twisted it and corrupted it as a people, as a race of humanity. And and we ask for your forgiveness and we ask that you would keep us as Christians, especially in, in this context of sexuality, keep us from temptation. We ask that you would teach us good, positive things, biblical things about how sexuality uh, is a beautiful um, gift that you have given to us in it, and how crucially tied to salvation, uh, our, our, our understanding of what Christ has done for us, that it is. Uh, we pray that in these discussions we would, uh, as we've done tonight, continue to seek clarity, continue to seek understanding um, humbly, and uh, be willing to ask good questions. And we pray that uh, you would even uh, help me as I continue to uh, walk and talk through these things. Would you give me clarity and um, uh, ease of, uh, of words? And I pray that as we sing to you now and as we go about this week, would we go from here thinking about not just how can we submit ourselves to you and our sexuality, but what about all the other areas in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds? Can we give to you uh, and continue to obey you and die to ourselves? We thank you for your spirit who helps us do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.